Our passage today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1, 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, so that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Good morning, church family. Mis queridos, my beloved. Uh, I'm honored to be here this morning. Uh, I'm honored to be bringing uh, this passage this morning. This is a passage of scripture that is very rich. Uh, it's very dense. It has uh, a lot of convicting parts to it. Uh, it has some uh, parts to it that are uh, quite honestly a little bit uh, astonishing. So I'm very excited about this. Um, this is, uh, uh, I think, uh, one of Paul's best. It's from his uh, third missionary journey, and it's a passage with what I call the Gospel Cascade. So the Gospel Cascade is uh, essentially the Gospel overflowing in your life, where you're giving more of yourself to the Lord, focusing on others, and then ultimately leading to incredible, bountiful generosity. That's what this passage is about. So as we get started, uh, I'd like to pray. Father, I just uh, come before you in celebration, Father, of uh, Michael, Imelda, Zoe, and David, Father. I'm just always so touched when we have baptisms. I'm so excited that they have just proclaimed, Father, that they have trusted in you. That they identify with you, that they are going to walk in newness of life with you, Father. What joy that brings us, and I know that brings you incredible joy too. Father, that you would just walk with them intimately, continually, that you would be their heart's desire, Father, their joy and their delight. You're worthy of celebration and you're worthy of devotion. I pray, Father, that today my words would bring you honor. I pray, Father, that you would look past the sins and imperfections and inferiorities that I have, Father, as your servant, and that you would touch hearts, Father, with not my words, but your word and your Holy Spirit of truth, Father. All this we pray in your name. Amen. So I want to share a little bit uh, 
in setting up this passage a little bit of my heart as, as an elder here at Mansfield Bible. Um, the elders and the church leaders have really been impacted now for quite some time with what we see in front of us, the stand firm challenge uh, and the campaign and what we have to do. So just to set this up very quickly, you saw where Pew Research at large reports alarming generational loss in church. Youth and young people have lost interest in church at large. Young families are not connected to biblical community. They're not connected to small groups. And increasingly, people are being lost to the world. But you saw today in these baptisms how the Lord is working here at NBC. And this is what I see. We have more youngsters coming up each grade than those that are graduating out. That's rare. We have young people here who love the Lord and who are asking for space. We have vibrancy in the teaching here, in the institute, in Rooted. We have many incredible small groups and Bible studies going on. We have vitality in young families that I think we haven't had in some time and more diversity at NBC than I've ever seen. We're not perfect, don't get me wrong, we're not perfect, but God is at work. And you know, as time goes on, we also have wear in this church, we have wood rot and whatnot, so what is God really telling us? I believe that when the Lord brings these needs forward to us as leaders in the church, that it's a unique calling for God showing us, look at where I am working, and join me where I'm working. And it comes part and parcel with our role as elders to lead, feed, guard, guide, oversee, and pray. That's what we see as our role in the scriptures. Now, I do recognize that when it comes to giving, many of you have been perhaps shamed or reluctantly made to give somewhere in your Christian experience. You may have had a, uh, what I call a drive-by guilting by a church leader somewhere. You may feel burned by abuses of, of power or finances somewhere in your Christian experience. And if so, I pray that you would experience God's word as instructive and definitive, perhaps even surgical in helping repair and rewire your thinking about our affections, and about what generosity really means. Jesus taught heavily uh, about giving. As much as 25% of his teaching was about money. And the reason for that is it reveals our hearts. Money is the MRI to our soul. So as we consider grace giving, as we ask ourselves the fundamental question, uh, it's the one we learned at the Institute, for those of you that have been part of the Institute. What does the text say? What does it actually say about this? Well, Scripture does say that the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's a metaphor. It means that he made the world, he sustains the world, as you see uh, in Scripture, and that it's all things are held together through Jesus Christ. Every single thing we think we own is really his, 
and we're just his stewards. And his desire for us is that we would take hold of that which is life and that we would find joy. And just like Lingle shared last week, God desires a cheerful giver. With that backdrop, let's look at this passage. The churches in Macedonia were, were very special. Um, and the churches in Macedonia were uh, very key. Now, I'm gonna, I, I say the word sometimes Macedonia a little different than many people. Uh, I know it's not Spanish, but my, my wife says constantly that I make every word a Mexican word, and it's true, <laughs> right? But this word, Macedonia, the, the emphasis is on the do, okay, is a Latin Slavic word. And let's face it, Latin Slavic, it's all Spanish spoken poorly, so. <laughs> so turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9. And we're gonna look here at a very relevant map of the region. And as we look at this map of the region, I want you to know just a few things behind it. Paul had a burden that had been laid on his heart, and he shared it with God's people because it was compelling. The circumstances were compelling, and there were profound needs in the church of Jerusalem. So what was going on? So you may ask yourselves, Paul, what was going on, Paul? Well, you may remember that in the book of Acts, they shared all things and they had all things in common. But then they got hit with some incredible climactic anomalies, right? The mother church, Jerusalem, was in severe hardship. So the historical backdrop here is that around 57 AD, the mother church in Jerusalem now was suffering hardship. And the tide had turned. And Paul began to take this hardship on. He laid it out directly to the church in Corinth. The saints in Jerusalem were suffering, and these things were piling up. There was regional drought. There was severe famine and crop failure. There were earthquakes, and there was economic distress. All this, of course, on top of the religious persecution that was going on at the time. They were ostracized by the Jews and the Romans because they were followers of the way. Now, you may say in Latin, Latin Slavic type, you may say, what this mean, the way? Well, it's not the Mandalorian, the way. This is the way. No, it's not that. They actually, they actually stole that from the book of Acts, if truth be told. Okay? So I'm not talking about the way from, uh, from the Mandalorian. I'm talking about the way of Jesus Christ. So on his third missionary journey, in Acts 18 through 21, Paul traveled to the churches of Macedonia, there he goes again, <laughs> Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and he was really touched by what he saw. These churches were different, they were unique, and quite frankly, it was astonishing. They loved God, and they were divinely touched with his grace. So some of you that have been on some of our church mission trips may be in Africa and have seen it with the Maasai. Uh, others have seen it in Ecuador, have seen people that were impoverished. Uh, those of you that went to Ecuador and went to Pechancho, 
You saw people who were poor, who were humble indigenous people, and they would give you the shirt off their back. These were people who just loved Jesus. Now, similarly, Paul is highlighting to the church in Corinth that the people of Macedonia were similar, that, that what he found in these churches was really distinct. And so he basically says that the gospel was the driver that generated that overflow of generosity. And we're going to get to that part in a, section, in a second. But what is key here is that Paul often used comparison. Now, comparison is not something that we typically like to see or do, right? Uh, when you compare your church to another church or you to somebody else, but Paul used it. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, comparison can be one of those things where you just don't want to hear it. You recoil when you hear it, right? So comparison, if we compare what we have, what we do, or our giftings with others, it's self-defeating. When we compare ourselves to the best, we can get ourselves into self-denigration and feeling inadequate or unsuccessful. When we compare ourselves to the worst, then pride sets in and we feel puffed up and overconfident. People who compare themselves to others are typically people who are pretty miserable and unhappy. So let's look here at how Paul uses comparison and how he kicks this off. So let's look back at verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. In a working of God, a Holy Spirit-given grace, look at the words carefully, it was a grace that was given to them. So it was something that came about because God touched their hearts and it welled up into this generosity. So when you think about that, Let's look at the um, next slide. I, I want to I spend a little bit of time talking about what is shocking. Uh, just past these verses, the, the first main slide there. Uh, what's astonishing about this? Okay, So affliction and severe poverty led to abundance of joy and extreme poverty leading to joy and an overflow of generosity. You may, be, you may be reacting like Scooby-Doo here. You may go, huh? What? Or you may be like, a fan, if you're a fan of the Prince's Bride, you may say, inconceivable, right? That's, that was my reaction. Actually, uh, when I first saw this, I said, ay caray, ay caramba, no puede ser, imposible. And what does that mean? That means inconceivable. The degree to which they loved God, the degree to which they were controlled by God's Holy Spirit, allowed them to lean into this opportunity. And it says that they leaned into this opportunity beyond their means. Beyond their means? Inconceivable. What does this mean? What this mean? Inconceivable. If you spoke Latin Slavic, you might say that. What this mean? It doesn't mean they took on debt. It doesn't mean that they voluntarily, uh, it, it does mean that they voluntarily, of their own volition, self-sacrificed. 
they cut into their comfort. They cut into their pleasures and into their priorities, and they proclaim that God and his bride, the church, is worth it, that he is enough, that he's worthy of my best. Love for Jesus became an overflow of love that spilled over into generosity. So how does this work? It's, it's similar to uh, what happens with our children. Think about your child and some of your best Christmases. You were more excited than those kids to experience that gift. You were experiencing the giving. You were elated. You were perhaps giddy. You couldn't wait for them to open that gift. Your heart swelled with joy and you just thought you were gonna explode. That's the spirit of the Church of Macedonia. With abundant joy, they were proclaiming, we will not be tethered to things of this world. We are heirs of the king. We have what we need, and he is worth it. Using the words of Paul, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to that glory that he is going to give us later. If we're honest with ourselves, this kind of sacrifice is just rare. It doesn't happen very often. We don't really look hard at sacrifice. We generally always give from the margin. We do the math. We slap together a budget. When we worship, often we worship, unfortunately, at false idols. We worship at empty promises. We look to find fulfillment in the wells of this world that ultimately will not satisfy us. What is the true object of our affection? Often it's a hobby, a newer model of a car, a vacation, the next house, the next upgrade. Our hearts deceive us. We pursue the thing that we think is going to be the thing. And listen, I find myself caught up in this. And I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. Jesus is more. He is the more than what we're really looking for. So Jesus taught that money is the MRI to the soul. You can't hide from it. We worship false gods, and it's just hard for us to admit. But that is what, why Jesus taught so much about money. Because in truth, we often don't bring him our best. We bring our first and best to the wrong altar. Ask Tom Brady. Ask Matthew Perry. Ask anybody who's had wealth and they would tell you the struggles that they have in life because they worship at the wrong altar. Then Paul highlights something even more astonishing in this passage. At the end of verse three, he says, they begged us earnestly. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. Is that what it says? No. This is where you should be saying, oh, yo, no. That's not what it says. It says that, that the Macedonians pleaded for the ability to give. 
And then Paul says, they gave and they exceeded our expectation. For they gave of themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What this mean? They gave of themselves first to the Lord. Imagine what it would look like at NBC if everybody was diving in to give themselves first to the Lord. We have a lot of people here who love the Lord, and I'm not trying to be critical, but if everybody jumped in, like the Macedonians, with that spirit of giving to themselves first, we would have people lining up for baptisms. We would have people lining up to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We would have people begging, lining up 25 deep, asking Donna, please, let me care for children, especially those misbehaved temper tantrum types. Bring them on. Brady, Tanya, and Fatima receiving 15 emails from people wanting to host Disciple Now and youth events, bringing trays of food. That's what that would look like. So many people coming on Wednesday night to hear Awana kids say their verses because they don't have enough that DeVito would have to put cones out in the back parking lot. What would it look like if we all gave ourselves first to the Lord? That was what was going on in the spirit of Macedonia. So abundant generosity was the spillover of their heart. Poverty and affliction, abundance of joy led to giving themselves first to the Lord, triggering selflessness, meeting the needs of others, asking earnestly to participate, producing generosity and grace-giving, and giving, giving beyond their means, sacrifice. Paul is calling us to be like the church of Macedonia. The easy way to remember this is with your bad Latin Slavic. Mas in Spanish means more. So think of this, Macedonians. If, when, when, when people ask you, what did Paul talk about today? You can say, the church of Macedonia. They love Jesus mas and they gave mas. That's what you need to remember, easy to remember. They didn't consider their affliction a reason to hold back. It was the poor being asked to help the poor, no question. But they didn't use that as an excuse. The Macedonians were afflicted, but not crushed. They were troubled, but not driven to despair. They were persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And they carried on the death and life of the Lord Jesus, so that in his work, it would be revealed in them. Their life was a fragrant aroma of Jesus. They smelled of Jesus. That's the kind of people we need to be. That's the kind of people I need to be. In verse 6, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to work with Titus on the collection. He says, <clears throat> in a Latin Slavic kind of a way, Hey, you guys, you excel in so much. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in kindled love, but also, he says, also excel in the grace of giving. What does this mean, the grace of giving? Well, when you think of God's grace, 
We don't often think of grace being tied to giving, but he's saying it's a grace of giving, right? He's saying that they needed to excel. In fact, the phrase that he uses in that passage is we need to excel in the grace of giving. What does it mean to excel? It means to outdo, to be a cut above, to be the mostest and the bestest and the creme de la creme, to be, like we say in Spanish, el mero mero, right? What does that mean? I know you all don't speak Spanish, not all of you. What does that mean? Inconceivable. That's what it means. We, that's how we need to approach it. Paul says, I'm not commanding you or compelling you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of the people of Macedonia. So he uses comparison. He reminds them that the gospel of Jesus is the foundation. And then in verse 9, let's look at the last verse. I think it's the last slide with the passage on it. Paul said, The Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So you ask yourself, what this mean? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. It's the gospel. Jesus, basically being God and equal in power and glory with the Father, came into this world to die for us. Let's look at the last slide. Here it is. Jesus, equal in power and glory with the Father, loved us so much that for our sake, he became poor. He became a man for us. He was born in poor circumstances. He lived a poor life. He suffered and died in poverty. He rose again to give blessing and promises of a new covenant, rich in the hope of, in the hope of eternal life being heirs of his kingdom. You see, the foundation for all of this is the gospel. Because we're dead in sin. Our default posture of our heart is self. It's comfort, leisure, convenience, all because we love stuff. We're like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. You guys remember the seagulls in Finding Nemo? Nemo's flapping around, fish was trying to decide whether he was going to get into the pelican's mouth to be, you know, taken care of. And all of the seagulls are coming around saying, mine, 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 mine. That's us. That's how we look at our stuff. What is God telling us about our heart and our innate selfishness? He says, you are tethered to earthly things. Joy in the gospel is the foundation. But maybe you haven't ever entered that foundation. Maybe you've never really understood the gospel. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel says, I am so bad that he had to die for me. And I'm so loved that he was glad to do it. This should leave us to a deep humility and confidence because God is granting us forgiveness. He is 
essentially saying that we are positionally righteous, cleansed and raised to newness of life because his blood covers us, the penalty of sin taken care of on our behalf. We are simul justus peccator, simultaneously sinful and, and yet we are justified by the blood of our Lord Jesus. So maybe you came to church today thinking that the church was a place where people go to be better people. That, that somehow church is a place for good people to become better people. But Jesus didn't die to make us better people. He came to make dead people live. God is not surprised by our struggles and our sin and he is not in love with a cleaner version of you and a more put together version of you. He knew what he died for. So trust Christ. Receive the free gift of the Lord Jesus today and come forward to talk to the prayer team. Come forward to talk to me or any of the leaders in the church. And if you're already a devoted follower of Christ, please consider the, church, the challenge of Macedonia, the compelling words of the Apostle Paul. Prayerfully, planfully, think about stand firm, about hearts of generosity, and about the Macedonian challenge. That since the sincerity of our love is there, that it would well up into a faith and a deeper love for our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your amazing grace and for your word, Father. How astonishing it is to know that you ask nothing for, from us to earn your forgiveness. No striving to measure up, no self-punishment, no prolonged remorse, no penance, no deeds of, of uh, working our way to you, Father. We don't have to sink down and, and be defeated by all the wrong that we've done in life. You don't hold a scale to balance the good and the bad and whether our good works outweigh our sins. You loved us enough, Father, to, to die for us. And we stand here, Father, saying we trust you. And by trusting our Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the, on the cross, Father, you are clothing us with garments of salvation. You make us righteous, positionally righteous, where every stain is removed and there is no condemnation. Your word says there is no condemnation for those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would be glorified today. I pray, Father, that in thinking through uh, this time of hearts of generosity and grace giving, Father, however much we decide to give, I pray that it would honor you, that it would bring joy to you, Father, but also to us. You know our heart, Father. You know that we are already um, somewhere on that spectrum, and we're already giving to something. Reveal to us, Father, what you would have us do. Reveal to us, Father, where we have desires or motives, uh, Father, that uh, maybe are just not healthy. For we know, Father, that what you desire for us 
is joy. And you want us to grab that which is life. Thank you for that, Father. All this we pray in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.